0: morning church. I'd like to open up with another word of prayer before we get started and uh, then we'll take this thing off. Father God we we love you and uh, we thank you for your word. If it were not for Jesus none of us would have a reason to be here uh, but Jesus is the uh, thread that brings us all together and so I pray that you'll empty me of myself this morning. Let me be an empty vessel Uh, to be used for the advancement of your kingdom. And uh, I pray that our ears were here and our hearts were here, what we need to hear this morning. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, and just park ourselves there for a moment. Uh, This uh, passage, which is on the ten lepers, will be our message for this morning, which I have titled, uh, What Will It Take? Now for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Andy, my wife Melody and our two rascally boys are sitting right over here and um, our, our boys are not as rascally as some but definitely hold their own. They certainly have super cool haircuts, I can say that because I cut their hair. <laughs> but um, what, you, what you may not know about my wife though is that she is, out of the two of us, she's the intelligent one. Okay. Uh, And that's for a number of reasons, many reasons, uh, but not the least of which is because she has her MDiv from Southwestern. And because she has her MDiv from Southwestern, I always, whenever I teach, I always fact-check my lessons with her. Uh, So if I say anything that's not right this morning, just look at her. (laughs) All kidding aside, When Pastor Sam's gave me this uh, assignment a few months ago, as I studied the passage, I, I really felt the Holy Spirit leading me to share my own story with you this morning. Because as it turns out, this story of the ten lepers and my story have a lot in common. Now, I, share, I told that to Stephen Purse last week, and his first question was, Wait, you were a leper? Well, no, no, I wasn't a leper. but. Um, there are similarities between the two stories, and so, uh, in fact, I believe that by the time we get to the end of this, we will find that we all have a little bit in common with these ten lepers. So my story starts when I was a, a boy, and as a, as a young boy, I wanted to be just like my dad, uh, so much so that while other boys would typically want to grow up to be uh, astronauts, firefighters, and policemen, I wanted to be an insurance agent yes, as a four-year-old boy, I wanted to be an insurance agent. I didn't have any idea what that was, but it didn't matter to me because that's what my dad was, and I wanted to be just like him. And this dream never died. When I was 14 or 15, I started working with his business as a file clerk. By the time I graduated high school, I was a fully licensed insurance agent. I went to Florida State for my degree in risk management, go Knowles and uh, I continued working in the family business for several years thereafter but I want to say I appreciate Aaron Chan and Stephen Purse for dedicating the time that they did to preach on the prodigal son over the last few weeks because as it turns out I am that son you see somewhere along my path I began to lose my way and here's what I mean while I was in college Florida State was also known as one of the top 10 party schools. And my life reflected that statistic. You see, I was 22 years old when I found myself in jail one night for driving under the influence. And this was, at that time, the longest night of my life. Unfortunately, nobody was hurt by my reckless behavior, but I couldn't sleep. All I could think about that whole night was how much I had let my dad down. And I wondered what his first words to me would be. You have to understand that for a boy who all his life has just wanted to be like his dad, there are a few moments where I have felt more like a failure. I mean, if I was uh, deserving of anything, it was certainly, you know, condemnation, uh, ridicule, and shame. Or the next morning as I was being released, the guards brought us to this hallway where all that separated the criminals from society was this concrete wall on my right in that wall was this small square window and through that window I could see my dad standing tall next to my mom they had come to pick me up don't miss the fact that my mom was there too in fact you moms really deserve a lot of praise because y'all put up with an awful lot of nonsense especially from us boys but the shame that I felt when I saw them in that moment was overwhelming as I approached my parents I couldn't lift my eyes, even to meet my father's gaze. What was he gonna say, I kept wondering. Or well, he's watching on livestream right now, and so I wanna say to you, Dad, that uh, thank you, thank you. you. You showed me Jesus, and now that I'm a father, I have a bit of a better understanding of and appreciation for your perspective in that moment. You see, without saying a word to me, My dad embraced me in a way that said everything that I needed to hear in that moment. My son, I love you and I forgive you. You see, my dad was the selfless father in the prodigal son story. And of course, it's not the only, but it's definitely one of the greatest uh, displays of Christ-like fatherly love that he has shown me. For a father to forgive a son before the son ever asks for forgiveness... You see, as Jesus hung from the cross, abandoned, beaten, mocked, broken, nobody seeking forgiveness from him. Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 34 of his gospel that Jesus cried out to God and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wish I could say that that was the moment of my salvation, but it wasn't. It was a stepping stone, though. Jesus intervened in my life, but I didn't pay attention. The next year was 2008. And most of us remember what happened that year, right? The housing market crashed, the economy crashed, the country goes into a recession, and my lifelong dream of working side-by-side by by my dad came to an end. I couldn't keep working uh, with them, and I had to find employment elsewhere. I was able to pick up, uh, you know, little jobs here and there, oddball jobs. But more and more, it just wasn't enough to make ends meet. Within one uh, winter day in the 2008-2009 season, I'm doing this landscaping job for a friend of mine. And I actually feel pretty bad for this guy because I didn't know anything about landscaping. I still don't. You should see my yard. But within a few months, everything I planted for him died. Um, ...but he was trying to help me out. So as I worked there on my hands and knees... ...using a pickaxe to try to dig this hole... ...into the side of this gravel driveway... ...every strike of that axe... ...mocking me and proving how foolish I was... ...I finally broke down, began sobbing... ...and cried out to Jesus... ...telling him that if he would rescue me... ...of this misery, I would follow him. And I wish I could say that I held up my end of that bargain but I didn't Christ gave me a job where I was able to make a steady paycheck but I kept living life my way and then 2009 came and I was diagnosed with cancer And I think I remember standing next to this dog park I had I had dogs at the time now I have kids I don't need dogs anymore Um, but I was watching the two dogs play and I think I remember praying to God and telling him that if he would rescue me of this life robbing disease that I would follow him. So as a response to that prayer, the surgery to remove the tumor and test for malignancy ended up being the surgery that cured the cancer. I required no further treatment and I've been cancer free to this day. Now to say that I was spared would be an understatement. But yet again, I didn't keep my end of the bargain. You see, 2007, 2008, and 2009 are three years which mark three encounters that I had with Jesus Christ. I was walking my own path through life, encountered Christ miraculously three separate times, but kept on walking each time, never turning back to thank Him, to praise Him, or to worship Him. And in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, we have a similar story where men encounter Christ but failed to turn back to praise him thank him or worship him. Your story goes like this. Now it happened that as he Jesus went to Jerusalem that he kept that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village there stood there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off and they lifted up their voices and said Jesus master have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. And with a loud voice, glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? So he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Ten men encounter Christ. Only one turns back. As I prepared for this sermon and continued to draw on the similarities between this story and my own, there are three questions that bubbled to the surface that I want to take time to answer this morning. The first is this. When do we see Jesus for who he is? When do we see Jesus for who he is? What I mean is, when do we recognize him? What must happen in our lives for us to be able to see Jesus for who he truly is? So my sister placed her faith in Christ at a young age. Because she was saved at a young age, she lived her life on the straight and narrow. She lived what we would call a good life. She never really got into a whole lot of trouble, but I recall her saying to me once that she wished she had a testimony like mine. She absolutely was thankful and grateful for her salvation, but she in that moment feared like it just wasn't an effective story. Well, what she has come to understand is that a lost soul saved by grace is an effective story. It doesn't matter when they're saved, but here's my point. You see, some people are blessed in that they recognize Jesus early on in life. They're spared certain unnecessary difficulties because of that. Others, like myself, are a bit more hard-headed. And I often describe this difference by two types of people. You see, you have type A. And they have to, that's those who have to learn their life lessons the hard way. They make mistake after mistake. And the only way that they ever learn to do anything right is by first doing it wrong. And then you have type B, which is those who observe the type A people and observe and, op- and wisely say that I'm not going to do it that way. And so they spare themselves a lifetime of trouble. Now, I, of course, am of the first type, type A. And if you're here this morning and you're a type B person, then I say count your blessings. Because, yes, both people struggle with sin and have an equal need for Jesus, but speaking from personal experience us type A folks seem to get ourselves into a lot more trouble. Now I've, I've, I've gotten older as I've gotten older I like to think that I've wised up and I'm somewhere between type A and type B but I still struggle from time to time, don't we all? I think if we're honest we would admit that we all have a bit of type A and type B within us. Well what about these 10 lepers? What type do we think that they are? We don't know anything about them we don't know why they have leprosy but I suspect that at least most of them may be type A people as well. Just call it my spidey sons. And we're not told whether or not these men have ever met Jesus prior to this moment, but at the very least, they certainly have heard of him. He has traveled through the area before. He has performed miracles before. And so when they see this man entering their village, followed by a crowd, they recognize him for who he is. But why? Why? Well it's because they have a need for him. I cannot help but wonder though that if they did not have leprosy, would they have still recognized Jesus? Would they have even cared that he was there? I'm also afraid that stories like this have become so commonplace that they've lost the effectiveness they otherwise should have. You see we grow up hearing these stories in Sunday school as children over and over and before long the story has lost its flavor. It's no longer heart changing to hear about men being cleansed of leprosy. Why is that? Well, let's see if we can change that. What is leprosy? Well, today it's called Hansen's disease. And this is how the Center for Disease Control defines it. They say it is an infection caused by bacteria called mysobacterium leprae. I'm sure that I pronounced that wrong, but that's okay. The disease, can off, the disease can affect the nerves, skin, eyes, and lining of the nose. The bacteria attacks the nerves, which can become swollen under the skin. This can cause the affected areas to lose the ability to sense touch and pain, which can lead to injuries like cuts and burns. And usually, the affected skin changes color, either becoming light or dark, often dry or flaky, with loss of feeling, or reddish due to inflammation of the skin. And if left untreated, The nerve damage can result in paralysis of hands and feet. In very advanced cases, the person may have multiple injuries due to lack of sensation, and eventually the body may reabsorb the the affected digits over time, resulting in the apparent loss of toes and fingers. Corneal ulcers and blindness can also occur if facial nerves are affected, and other signs of advanced Hansen's disease may include the loss of eyebrows and saddle-nose deformity, resulting from damage to the nasal septum. If you don't know what that is, that's the the wall between your nostrils. Now, surprisingly, the CDC goes on to explain that leprosy today is actually a very curable disease. And if treated early on, those infected can live active lives even during treatment, no isolation required. So what's the big deal? Well, in biblical times, there was no cure for leprosy. So lepers were isolated, not for the purpose of their own cure, but rather to prevent the disease from spreading. So there's this scene in the movie War for the Planet of the Apes, which, where the disease that gave the apes their intelligence but killed off the majority of the human race has now mutated and is affecting the few remaining humans that were otherwise thought to be immune. And just like this disease advanced the intelligence of the apes, it now begins to degrade the intelligence of the humans, and the humans lose their ability to speak, think, and begin behaving like apes. So in an effort to try to stop this disease from spreading, the general of the militia has those infected, shot, and killed. And this is essentially the scene that's happening here with leprosy in biblical times. There is no cure for leprosy. So the only option is to isolate the infected in hopes of preventing contamination spread. Now, if the CDC's description of leprosy was not enough for you and you need more, then I recommend to you Leviticus 13, which describes in graphic detail how to identify and diagnose leprosy. I do not recommend, however, reading it while you're eating. But within this descriptive chapter, God says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's Leviticus 13, verses 45 through 46. So this is the prescription of medical care for leprosy in that day torn clothes, put outside the camp, screaming unclean anytime someone gets too close, which, by the way, what we mean is that if they are downwind, they cannot be within 50 paces of others, and if they are upwind, they cannot be within 100 paces of others in case the disease somehow becomes airborne, I guess. The only way that any of this ever ends is when the disease eventually kills you. So just imagine, you're living in Israel in this time, and you're living your best life now. You develop a rash on your arm, and so you go to be examined by the priest because the law requires it, and you're a law-abiding citizen, and the priest examines you and only to pronounce you unclean with the leprous disease, and so you're then torn from your wife, you're torn from your children, never to see them again as you die a slow and agonizing death. There's a scene in the Old Testament where Miriam, when she defies her brother uh, Moses, and as punishment, God infects her with leprosy. Aaron then turns and pleads with Moses, saying, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And then Moses turns and pleads with God, saying, Oh, God, please heal her, please. Please. And you you hear the desperation in their words and you come to understand that this is a devastating diagnosis. I mean, this is the cancer of the day. And I'm spending so much time focusing on what leprosy is because I don't want you to miss how severe it was at the time. We have to put the flavor back in this story. You see, these men in Luke chapter 17 are suffering when Jesus arrives on the scene. There's not just physical torment from what the disease is doing to their bodies, there's also emotional despair because they have not seen their families in years. They're as isolated as isolation comes, and I can imagine that for, for a man not to be able to care for your family or yourself, it has got to be damaging in, in so many ways. And so this is where the 10 men are. They're outside the village, they're alone, and they're broken. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like an outsider? Have you ever felt alone and broken? Have you ever felt like you had no one to turn to? Well, Jesus is coming. He's on his way. He is here. Here he is. They recognize him, and they cry out for mercy. God, have mercy on me. I mean, how many times have we made that same cry in our own life? They recognize Jesus because they recognize their own need for him. They're in despair with no way out. They have heard of this Jesus, that he performs miracles, so they figure he must be sent of God. When did you first see Jesus for who he truly is? Were you a type B person, heard the gospel early on, immediately recognized Jesus and followed him? Or are you, like me, a type A person who needed a little more pursuing? Or in my case, a lot more pursuing. You see, if we cannot see our need for Jesus, we will never see him as he truly is. I'll say that again. If we cannot see our need for Jesus, we will never see him for who he truly is. And that's the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So our first question this morning was, when do we see Jesus for who he is? And the answer is, when we recognize our need for him. The second question is what does Jesus come to do? What does Jesus come to do? You see, when we are broken, alone, and on our knees crying out, Jesus shows up. But he doesn't just show up and say, hi, how are you? He comes to do work, but he never does it in the way that we expect him to, now does he? These ten leprous men cry out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. But Jesus' response strikes me as somewhat unexpected. Now, we don't know what these guys expected. But I know if it were me, I would have thought there would be something more grandiose. Some theatrics, maybe lightning and thunder as he swings a hammer. At least an abracadabra. But that's not what we get. The Bible doesn't even tell us if Jesus approaches the lepers. So as far as we know, he keeps his 50 paces. And as he continues into the city, says... Go and show yourselves to the priests. That's all, that also strikes me as unreasonable. And here's why I say that. If Leviticus 13 provides a process for diagnosing leprosy, then Leviticus 14 provides a process for returning a leper that has been cured. It says, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. And if the leprous per- disease is healed in the leprous person, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. Now that is, of course, a very summarized version of the chapter, which goes on to give a lot of detail on how to go about the sacri- sacrificial cleansing process, which is the law for the leprous person in the day of his cleansing. But what's interesting about Leviticus 14 is that until Jesus shows up and begins his ministry, we actually have no official record of any leprous person, any Hebrew leprous person ever being cured of leprosy. Yes, we do have two accounts in the Old Testament. The first is Miriam when God punished her for defying Moses. But some will argue that the account doesn't actually indicate that she was healed, but rather she was just brought back into the camp. Now, yes, we can make that leap. We can make the conclusion that by being brought back into the camp, that means she was healed. But others would argue that even if she was healed, that all of that happened before Leviticus 14 uh, was written, and so it wasn't even being practiced yet. Then you have centuries later where Elisha the prophet tells Naaman the Syrian commander to go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and then he was clean. But being a Syrian, Naaman was not bound by Jewish law, so he did not have to engage in the, the cleansing process as prescribed by Leviticus 14. So let me ask you this. Why would Jesus include in his Levitical law a process for pronouncing a man clean of a disease which can never be cured? Well, it's because Jesus Christ is in the business of performing miracles and answering prayers, and he left himself room to do so in his own law. Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And for the second time since Leviticus 14 was written, priests are pronouncing leprous men clean. Men torn from their families, torn from society, torn from their communities are now going to priests and showing themselves cleaned. Just imagine the talk of the town. No one has seen this before. It's also interesting to me that Jesus sends the ten men to the priests while they were still leprous. Look look at the passage again. It says, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. It doesn't say that Jesus cleansed them and then sent them to the priests. He sent them to the priests and afterward they were cleansed. Well, where else do we see Jesus cleansing people before they're actually clean? On the cross. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, leprosy in that day had no medical cure, and sin in our day and in every day has no medical cure. There's nothing that you can do to heal yourself of your sins. Leprosy may rot your body, but sin will rot your soul. And just like leprosy, sin will isolate you from your friends and your family and your church. And because there is nothing that you can do to to heal yourself, it requires an act of faith to be cleansed by Jesus. Those ten men still had leprosy when they went to the priests. It was only after they obeyed in faith that their leprosy was healed which shows us that without faith in Christ, Jesus has no room to heal sin. Better yet, without faith in Christ, Jesus will not heal sin. It's as if Jesus said to those men, the cure is waiting for you. All you have to do is believe. So if you're here this morning and your sin has destroyed your life your sin has separated you from your family and left you in isolation, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the cure. All you have to do is believe. Even if sin hasn't had such a dramatic impact on your life, I can tell you that your sin has had such a dramatic impact on your eternity and has isolated you from your God. And without faith in Christ, there you have no hope. Jesus is the cure. All you have to do is believe He is who He says He is, and He did what He said He did, and you will be saved. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, just a moment ago, I mentioned that this was actually the second time since Leviticus 14 was written, that men were coming to priests to show themselves clean of leprosy. I'm sure I had y'all chipped up with that a little bit. The first account is recorded earlier in chapter 5 of Luke, verses 12 through 16. I won't turn there and read it, but the story is simply this. We have a man who is described as being full of leprosy. Now, I'm no scholar, but to me, that means that he has been a leper for a long time. He hasn't seen his family in years. His kids have grown up without him. His wife likely considers him dead. And in fact, he's nearing death. His fingers and toes have disappeared. His nose is caved in. He's blind. He can't see. And he's covered head to foot with oozing sores and, his, and lacerations and burns and injuries. But he sees Jesus for who he is. He recognizes him. And he falls on his face and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's the faith. And Jesus reaches out with his hand and touches this man who is full of leprosy and says, oh, I am willing, be cleansed. My friends, Jesus Christ is willing to cleanse us of all of our sins. All we must do is ask, you do not have to be clean to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and he will make you clean. He is willing. But wait, there's more. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that he came to fulfill the law. Well, if you look it back at Leviticus 14, which is the law, in, chapter, in verse 18, it says the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. And the chapter goes on to prescribe the sacrifices required to make atonement. Sacrifice is required to make atonement. And again, Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us of our sin. And if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you, if you look, you see that the word cleanse, in between cleansing sin and cleansing leprosy, it's the same word. So we understand that Christ Himself is the sacrifice. I mean that's what our whole faith is based on, right? Well, Jesus tells these men, "Go and show yourselves to the priests." And Leviticus 14 commands that that priest publicly pronounce those men clean. Well, if you look at the book of Hebrews, the whole book, especially chapter four, verse 13, teaches us that Jesus is our high priest. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 teaches also that Jesus is our advocate. And an advocate is defined as a person who publicly supports someone else. So not only is Jesus the one doing the cleansing, he is also the one who is publicly pronouncing us clean before God his Father. Jesus is the sacrifice that cleanses us, and he is the priest that makes atonement for us and then pronounces us clean. This is part of what he's talking about when he says that he came to fulfill the law. So we must go and show ourselves to the high priest. So our first question was, when do we see Jesus? And the answer was, when we recognize our need for him. Whenever that is. Our second question is, what does Jesus come to do? And the answer is, he comes, he comes to change lives. He comes to change eternities and forgive sinners and rescue the lost. He comes to pronounce us clean. The third question is, how should we respond? How should we respond? This is the big one, and we cannot afford to get this wrong. How should we respond when we are face-to-face with Jesus? Well, as it turns out, we're given a right way and a wrong way to respond when Jesus shows up. Look again at verse 15. It says, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, so Jesus answered, "Were not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? So let's focus on these nine for a moment, okay? They are suffering in the exact same way as a Samaritan. They have been separated from their families and their communities in the same way. Their flesh is being eaten by the same life-robbing disease. But unlike the Samaritan, they fail to respond to Jesus the right way. Because they fail to see him for who he really is. This story and my story tells us who Jesus is not. Jesus is not our genie in a bottle. Jesus is not our get-out-of-jail-free card. Yes, call on Jesus during hard times and good times... Yes, depend on Jesus as the giver and provider of all things. He is, after all, in the business of performing miracles and answering prayers. And you absolutely can and should cry out to Him in times of despair and praise Him in times of joy. But do not let your faith stop with just what He can do for you today. The purpose of Jesus doing work in our lives is not to make our lives better, it's to get our attention. It's to bring us into his fold so that we get to spend eternity forever praising him as Christ and king of all creation. You see, if your faith in Jesus is grounded only in what he can do for you today, what happens to your faith when he doesn't meet your expectations tomorrow? Enduring faith can only be based on the work Jesus Christ has already finished on the cross. Let me say that again. Enduring faith, that's faith which surpasses all understanding, can only be based on the work Jesus Christ has already finished on the cross. If If you base your faith on the work Jesus has already completed on the cross, then everything else that he will do in your life is just icing on the cake. And who doesn't like cake? Now, I think it's safe to say that Horatio Spafford's life represents enduring faith pretty well. If you don't know who I'm talking about, I will tell you that he was a successful attorney and real estate investor living in Chicago in the late 1800s. But in the great Chicago fire of 1871, he lost his entire fortune. And shortly thereafter, his four year old son died of scarlet fever. Thinking that a vacation would do his family some good, he sends his wife and four daughters on a ship for England, planning to join them after some pressing business at home. But tragically, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship is involved in a terrible collision and sinks, drowning more than 200 people, including all four of Horatio Spafford's daughters. His wife, Anna, survives the tragedy, and upon arriving in England, she sends a telegram to her husband that simply says, saved, alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately sets sail for England, and at one point during the voyage, the captain of the ship, who is aware of the tragedy that has struck the Spafford family, summons Horatio to tell him that they are now passing over the area where the shipwreck had occurred and his four daughters drowned. So Horatio steps out onto the deck of the ship. And as he looks across those life claiming waters and thinks on his daughters, these words uh, of comfort and hope fill his heart and mine. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. You see, Horatio Spafford was a Christ following man who lost everything. Really, his story is not too unsimilar to Job's. Yet, through all of that loss, his faith in Christ never failed. Why? Well, it's because his faith was based not in the work Christ could do for him, but on the work Christ had already completed on the cross. We know this because of what he pins next. Though Satan should buffet, Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. You see, Jesus Christ is knocking on your door, trying to get your attention. But take it from me, the correct response is not what I did in 2007, 2008, and 2009. Jesus knocked on my door three separate times, but I kept on walking. Jesus knocked on the door of these ten men, but nine of them kept on walking. And the sad part, which is the warning in this message, is that we churchgoers, we who call ourselves Christians are supposed to be leading by example. That's the twist in this story's plot. The nine Jewish men were expected to turn back, but wind up being yet another example in a long line of examples of what John says in chapter 1, verse 11 of his gospel, that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There's a lost and dying world out there that looks to us expecting to see something different from themselves, but I'm scared to ask, how often do we let them down? How often do we let Jesus down? How often is Jesus disappointed because we don't respond to him in the way that he expects us to? So if the wrong answer to the question, how should we respond, is to keep on walking, then what is the right answer? Turn back. The Samaritan that turned back received more than just cleansing of leprosy. He was also made whole. He was more than restored to his family. He was also restored to Christ himself. Jesus cleansed him of leprosy and cleansed him of his sin because of his faith. The nine only got the former. So let's turn back, oh sinners, let's turn back. Turn back, straight Christian. Turn back, turn back, brothers and sisters. Turn back to Jesus. Turn back to your Savior who has regarded your helpless estate, shed his own blood for your soul, and nailed your sin in hold to the cross. Turn back. This is the definition of repentance, to turn back. You're walking on a wide path straight to hell in opposition to God. And Jesus cries out with a loud voice from the cross, Turn back, my beloved. You hear his voice calling. You respond by, in faith to him, and you turn back. And just like the father when the prodigal son turned back, Jesus sees you from a long way off and runs to you with compassion to embrace you. That is repentance. Repentance. And the first, so the first question we asked this morning was, what, when do we see Jesus? And it's when we recognize our need for him. Whether our life is in trouble or not, or we have an eternal need for Jesus, and our sin has separated us from God, and we are bound for hell. The second question we asked this morning was, what does Jesus come to do? And the answer is, he comes to rescue us from our condemnation and pronounce us clean. The third question we asked this morning was how should we then respond? And the answer is to turn back. Turn back to Jesus. Stop living life your way. Turn back and come to Jesus. The prodigal son turned back. The Samaritan leper turned back. Don't wait any longer. You turn back as well. I won't leave you with any cliffhangers. I see you're on the edge of your seat. Maybe you just want to go to lunch. Uh, so, but I'll conclude with the rest of my story. You see, I'm, I'm so thankful that Christ is a long-suffering God. What that means is he is both patient and persistent. You see, Jesus didn't leave me alone after 2009. No, in 2010, my sister was praying for me, and in that moment, I decided to go back to church. In 2011, I moved to Jacksonville and got under spirit, convicting, preaching and teaching and was awakened to my need for Jesus, not because of what he could do for me, but because of what he has done for me. And for months, my heart yearned to turn back, but I kept on fighting. Like I said, I'm a a hard-headed person. But then one fateful Sunday morning, February 12th, 2012, I could fight no more. It was as if Jesus Christ himself whispered into my ear, What will it take? To which I responded, nothing more. And after years of running, I finally turned back, followed Jesus, and was made whole. So that's the title of our sermon this morning. What will it take to turn back? What will it take for you to turn back? Maybe you've always thought that God was distant or never trusted him before. Maybe you're alone and you can't hold it all together anymore. What will it take for you to turn back? If you trusted Jesus long ago, but the years and the hardships and the pride have caused you to stray from Christ like the one sheep or the prodigal son. What will it take for you to turn back? What will it take for us to see Jesus for who he is? What will it take for Jesus to be able to do in our lives what he came to do? What will it take to respond to Jesus by turning back? Our answer should be nothing more. I'll invite the worship team to come back on stage as we bring this thing in for a landing. You see, as Jesus hung from the cross, he was given sour wine to drink. And John tells us in chapter 19, verse 30 of his gospel, that Jesus said, It is finished. You see, the work that Jesus has done on the cross is enough for you to turn back. There's nothing more that He needs to do, but He will do it to get your attention and to get you to turn back. That's how much He loves you. And with so many people in this room, saved and lost souls alike, there's certainly someone who needs to turn back this morning. Don't do what I did. Don't let it wait six years or ten years or fifty years or even five minutes. You may not have that long. None of us are guaranteed it tomorrow. And really, every one of us, if we're honest, need to turn back on some degree at some level. So what will it take to come back and turn to Jesus? Let the answer be nothing more. And whether it's here, down front, or there in your seat, or if you want to come back and talk with someone to make a decision, I'll be in the back, other leaders will be in the back. But come and talk to one of us. Don't, don't let it wait any longer. Turn back today and let Jesus pronounce yourself clean. Let's pray.